Father, please come and uh, grant us attentive hearts, open them so that we would pay much closer attention to your word today and that uh, you would be glorified by our utter devotion to you and our praise to you as the God who reigns over all, as the one who will finally and fully bring redemption in every way where sin and all evil will be cast out and we will worship our Saviour for all eternity. We long for that. Give us a greater appetite for that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're now halfway through the book of Daniel. So Daniel chapter 7 today. And because we obviously divide up books of the Bible into bite-sized pieces so that we can work our way through often, the downfall of that is we forget to remember how each story and each chapter and each text is interwoven and joined together within the book and then how the books are interwoven within the grand narrative of Scripture. So just to give a a brief recap of what we've gone through so far, um, it will be very, very brief. We won't actually look at um, the themes uh, per se, but really just how uh, their connectedness is seen to us. So, for example, if we think about uh, chapter one, now some of you may know uh, Daniel was written in Hebrew in chapter one, and then we change languages, and it's then Aramaic from chapter two, about verse four, and we're still in Aramaic right up until the end of this chapter, and then it goes back into Hebrew. So if we take Daniel chapter 1 as a bit of an introduction, it sets the scene for the book of Daniel. And then we uh, go from chapters 2 to 7, which we are going through today, we can see a bit of a pyramid structure. I mentioned this on Wednesday. So if you take chapter 2 and then chapter 7, which we will go over today, we can see in chapter 2, it's basically a dream that Nebuchadnezzar has about four kingdoms to be replaced by a fifth indestructible kingdom. Now, what we will see today in chapter seven, which is the other base of this pyramid, we see a vision with four beasts that represent four kingdoms that will be destroyed by this indestructible kingdom. They will face judgment. So we have the two pillars of the pyramid. Then as we work our way up, we see chapters three and six that are largely about God's people as a little faithful remnant staying faithful to Yahweh in spite of persecution or things that threaten their allegiance. So we have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego threatened that if they don't bow down before the statue, they will be killed. They pass the test. And then we have Daniel threatened that if he makes any petition to anyone else other than Darius, he will be killed and he passes the test. So we have these next pillars. And then we have chapters four and five, which chapter four is Daniel interpreting a dream. And then chapter five is Daniel interpreting the writing on the wall, which then forms this pyramid. So you can see a connectedness, how each of these chapters uh, sort of relate to each other in a symmetrical theme. And they all fall under the overarching theme through Daniel of God's utter sovereignty over every human kingdom and every ruler, which is meant to bring comfort to his exiled people. Uh, And we see that chapter 7 is then very much uh, linked to the next few chapters, because even though chapter 7 closes out that initial pyramid, it then opens up this whole new section of apocalyptic literature. Uh, Apocalyptic just means revealed. So the most 
uh, common book of this is the book of Revelation, because the, the word revelation in Greek is apocalypsis, which means revealed or appearing. So that's where we get apocalyptic literature from. And, and uh, apocalyptic literature, like the book of Revelation, peels back the curtain and shows reality uh, in a way that God desires us to know. Usually apocalyptic literature is full of imagery. It's uh, often symbolic and it's there to convey a particular meaning. Now, as we approach this, we know instinctively to read different genres according to their genre. So if you read a newspaper, you are there reading it for the facts. It's not poetry. You're not looking for, I wonder what the author is really trying to describe here by an explosion in Afghanistan. No, you just know it's reporting the facts. Uh, Whereas if you had a bit of poetry, perhaps from a loved one, uh, you would be reading it in a very different way uh, to a news article. So if I uh, decided to write to my wife and I said, your eyes are like a thousand stars glimmering in the night sky, wherever she is, uh, she wouldn't be reading that thinking, ah, my eyes are kind of like exploding balls of gas. She would be obviously saying uh, or assuming that I'm saying uh, your eyes just have a captivating beauty to them. Uh, There's a symbolism to that. So as we approach this apocalyptic literature in Daniel, we uh, mustn't lose the forest for the trees. We need to see what the imagery is pointing to. Uh, You don't get the full picture of a forest by staring individually at every single tree on their own and then in your mind making it up. You might look at individual trees, but then you stand back and take a look and take in the beauty of it as you see the full picture. So let's have this in the back of our minds or rather the forefront really as we approach this text. And I'm going to read out Daniel chapter 7 and then uh, we will look at some of these themes through chapter 7. So Daniel chapter 7, starting from verse 1 all the way to verse 28. This is God's word. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back, And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it and it had ten horns. I considered the horns and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. 
His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with the fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High." and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, and his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. This is God's word. I was thinking this morning that uh, with all of the unusual imagery in this, it can seem unclear. But then I was thinking, actually, there's uh, not many other places in Scripture, not many other stories that just so clearly show the end of all human history. That just so clearly show, basically... God wins. That's it. Regardless of all of the evil and wickedness of human rulers and authorities, there is a king whose kingdom is indestructible. uh, And what a privilege that the saints of the Most High get to uh, partake in that. What do we read? Forever, forever and ever. Just had to add another forever in there to emphasize how... uh, infinite this is. 
to wonderful, wonderful reality. Today, we're going to look at these three particular visions that we see in the first half. You can see the passages broken down into Daniel's vision from 1 to uh, 14, and then uh, the second half goes into the interpretation. So we're going to look at the first, uh, the three visions, rather, the, the vision of the beast, the vision of the Ancient of Days, and the vision of the Son of Man. And then we will home in on the interpretation of this fourth beast that seems to be Daniel's emphasis. He wants to know about this fourth beast and particularly the little horn of the fourth beast. And look at this in light of the kingdom of darkness uh, clashing with the kingdom of God. And then finally finish with just clear conclusions that are awfully comforting for us. So firstly, the vision takes place in the year of Belshazzar, uh, the first year of Belshazzar. Notice we've gone back in time. Uh, last chapter in Daniel 6, uh, we read that the Medo-Persian Empire had taken over Babylon. Now, Daniel 7 kind of goes back in time to the reign of Belshazzar, who was the king of Babylon. And Daniel sees in his vision in the night, the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea. And these four beasts come out of the sea. The four winds of heaven is just a picture of how exhaustive This is the four winds of heaven leave nothing outside of their scope. The fullness of earth and everything in it is in view here. There's nothing outside of scope for the four winds of heaven and they stir up the great sea. And you might know the sea in ancient times was often symbolic of just chaos and fear. It was a very fearful place to be in the sea. It wasn't like people back then were going for leisurely holidays to the beach to swim around. No, if you're in the sea, uh, there's a high chance you might die. Uh, So the sea was a place of chaos and fear. And the picture we see here is already one of great chaos and fear. And then what do we see? Even more chaos and fear coming out of the sea in these beasts. So this is the picture. You can understand why Daniel is uh, suffering a tremendous amount of anxiety at the end of this vision. So let's see what is clear about these beasts before we look at specifics. Let's try to Firstly, as we approach apocalyptic literature, see what is clear and what we can understand about these beasts. In these four beasts, as you read through, you would have noticed three main themes of many, but three particular themes you can see is destruction, dominion, and distortion. Destruction, dominion, and distortion. These beasts are out to destroy. These aren't uh, rabbits or kittens coming out like these are a type predators you don't want to come across a lion or a bear especially these mutilated beasts these are out to destroy they have dominion we can see that they all have a rule and what's mostly in view for these kingdoms is most of the known world at this time they have dominion over a significant amount of the world Though it's only temporary, they still have dominion. And finally, they are distorted. Nothing about these beasts is natural. They're all very unnatural. There's a uh, lion with eagle's wings. There's the leopard with four wings of a bird and then four heads on it. And then the description of the fourth beast doesn't even get a description of an actual beast. It's just terrifying. So there's nothing really natural about these beasts. They are all a distortion of what should really be. So the clear picture we have is destruction, dominion, and distortion. Uh, But notice that in spite of their fearsome power, as I mentioned, the end for all of these kingdoms, 
for all of these rules is the judgment seat of God. It is their confrontation with the ancient of days. And that is their final end. That is the inevitable end for every beast and rule and authority. This confrontation with the ancient of days and final judgment. Now, let's just look a bit closer. Let's now take a a, a glimpse at some of the trees as we home in a, a little bit more. These four beasts, I believe, as I said, are meant to correspond with the four parts of Nebuchadnezzar's statue. I think there's intentionality there in the author of creating this pyramid in chapters two to seven, and they are meant to correspond with the four parts. We see in chapter two, if you remember, Nebuchadnezzar's statue has four parts to it. And then the fourth is... Uh, the strongest, but it is also fractured through a form of weakness. Remember, it's the iron mixed with clay. It's strong, the strongest all, but then it's fractured and it has a form of weakness about it until finally uh, this stone cut by no human hand comes and crushes everything. Now, if we look at the beast here in Daniel's vision in chapter seven, we can see it also has four parts. The fourth is clearly the strongest, but it also becomes fractured. When three horns are uprooted, because this little horn comes up. And finally, it is confronted with this everlasting kingdom. Now, there are two main interpretations of these four beasts. Some people hold that they uh, refer to Babylon and then Medea as a separate kingdom and then Persia and then Greece as these kingdoms or uh, Babylon and then a combined Medo-Persia. Greece and then Rome as the fourth beast, which I certainly believe that's what it's referring to. But remember, ultimately, we, uh, we don't fully know uh, because Scripture doesn't tell us. With apocalyptic literature, there's often an intentional vagueness about this. But I believe as we look at it, the most likely interpretation is that this is referring to Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. Uh, now, I had a whole bunch of uh, really interesting stuff here looking at these beasts. And I, I think that it is really interesting. For example, looking at uh, the, fourth, uh, the first beast, uh, which I believe is referring to Babylon. We can see a lion with eagle's wings. We know that the prophet Jeremiah refers to Babylon as both a lion and an eagle throughout his book. Ezekiel similarly refers to Babylon in that way. We see the eagle's wings plucked off, which could refer to Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation. We then... Uh, see that the beast is lifted up from the ground and restored to a form of humanness, which may point to Nebuchadnezzar's restoration. So you can see how there are all of these things. You may see other things through the second, third and fourth beast, which perhaps we could talk about it after the sermon or uh, at another time through the week. Um, Just for the sake of time, um, I want us to focus upon the big picture. But I believe that this is showing Uh, kingdoms representative of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. This seems like the unveiling here, but let's not lose the forest uh, for the trees. The big picture that we get in this is the way in which all of these mighty and fearsome kingdoms eventually fall before the Ancient of Days and before this indestructible kingdom. So let's look at these two other visions here of the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. These beasts are working their way through this vision toward uh, their confrontation with the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. 
Let's look in verses 9 to 10. We see this picture of the Ancient of Days, which is this picture of Almighty God. He takes his seat as the only one who can rightfully judge the living and the dead. His clothing is as white as snow to represent radiant purity. He has hair like pure wool, which gives this picture, certainly in the ancient times, of uh, perfect wisdom. And then we have fire coming from his throne, which is often associated with God appearing to man. And he is before a thousand thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 or myriad of myriads. This is the same uh, number is, as the throne seen in Revelation 5, which is basically just saying like a gazillion people are there. There's masses of people there. And before his throne of perfect power, purity and judgment, this little horn we see in verse 11 begins to speak great words. What it's saying there is his boasting. It's not great in a good way, but actually great words, which is sort of exalting himself before the Ancient of Days. It's a picture of foolishness, really, of this little horn speaking boastful things, speaking great things before the one who has all authority, all power, and now destroys the little horn. And we will come back to the little horn as we look at the interpretation later. Let's first see this picture of the Son of Man. So Daniel sees this picture of the Son of Man in verses 13 and 14. Let me read it out. He says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Daniel sees this picture with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. Clouds are often symbolic of divine appearance. Think of uh, the cloud entering into the temple. Uh, many other passages throughout the Old Testament of the clown uh, sort of signifying a divine appearance. And we know that the Son of Man is the most common title that Jesus actually uses for himself in his earthly ministry. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. So it's fair for us to say that this is, uh, though the language is someone like a Son of Man, we can see that this is actually pointing to the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is receiving dominion, glory and a kingdom over every people, nation and language. Despite the temporary nature of all of these kingdoms we see in the beast, the Son of Man has an indestructible, everlasting kingdom and rule. So firstly, just notice the beautiful exchange here that happens from these beasts now to the vision of the Son of Man. In contrast to the dominion of the beasts, which is temporary and fragile, we see the Son of Man has an everlasting dominion. Dominion, authority, rule is rightfully given to the Son of Man. Notice also in contrast to the mutilation of the beasts. They're all unnatural. We have finally the perfect human. The only natural figure really in terms of the beast and the Son of Man is, of course, the Son of Man. He is the perfect human. I've said this before. We often use the phrase of saying I'm only human to say, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm a sinner. But really, uh, to be human is to be perfect. Fallen humanity sins, 
right humanity as God had created, which Jesus restores and is the representative, is perfect. Jesus is the perfect human and he never sinned. So we see this contrast to all of the mutilation of the beast and finally this perfect, pure son of man receiving his kingdom. Now, secondly, notice when this happens. Notice verse 13. When does he receive the kingdom? Uh, When does he give him the dominion, glory and a kingdom? In verse 13, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days. When did the Son of Man come to the Ancient of Days? Now, I believe that is after his death, resurrection, and ascension. He is presented before the Father, presented before him, and seated at his right hand as the rightful heir of all things. In Daniel 7 13, we read, He comes uh, with the clouds of heaven. The Son of Man comes and He comes to the Ancient of Days. He came to the Ancient of Days. Now, if you remember in Acts, as Jesus recommissions His disciples, what happens is He ascends. A cloud takes Him up in Acts 1.9. And where does He go? To the Father, to the Ancient of Days. So I believe this is a picture of the coronation of the King and the inauguration of His kingdom. Not the fullness of it, but the inauguration of his kingdom. And this is why I believe it's helpful to understand the kingdom of God as a now and not yet reality. That this is the inauguration of the kingdom. And yet we await the consummation of it. Now, not everyone holds to this. And there are uh, good in-house discussions about the presence of the kingdom of God, whether now or later and how fully is it present now. But if we understand the purpose of these visions that Daniel gives, not specifically to give a chronological account of history, but rather to reveal particular aspects of God's redemptive work, then I believe we can see how this fits together within the grand narrative of Scripture. So let me just talk about the kingdom of God as that which is inaugurated, after Jesus' first coming and then the consummation of it, which will be in his second coming. We know that the kingdom of God comes in the king himself. Jesus brings the kingdom of God. That's why in his earthly ministry, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is in your midst. Repent for the kingdom of God is here in me. Jesus, as the king, brings the kingdom. And as the crucified and risen Christ is about to ascend... To the, heaven, to the heavens, to the Father, what does he say to his disciples in Matthew 28? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. This sounds like kingdom language. The risen Christ receives the dominion of a king. We as his people have the task of proclaiming this kingdom in this in-between time. Particularly if we understand chapter 2, Remember the picture of the statue, if we understand that to correlate to these four beasts. In chapter 2, we read, as uh, the passage talks about the iron and clay and this fourth part of the statue, we read in chapter 2, verse 44, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. That is, he will establish a kingdom that will never be destroyed in the days of those kings. So the kingdom of God 
is one which is established during the period of these destructive worldly kingdoms. But its consummation will bring about the end to all destructive worldly powers. So the kingdom of God is inaugurated as Jesus ascends to the Father, as he commissions his disciples and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. And as he comes to the Ancient of Days, the direction is him coming from somewhere to the Ancient of Days. And as the kingdom of God is inaugurated, naturally the kingdom of darkness takes a hit. Now I'm using the phrase kingdom of darkness representative of all of these human beastly combination authorities. The kingdom of darkness of the king, the prince of the power of the air, is really that which lies behind all of these humanly authorities and rulers. So you have the clash of the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God. And as Ben prayed out earlier, we as the saints have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of darkness must coexist with the kingdom of God. Hence, people now can still be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God as they are saved and as they bow before Jesus. So we know that when Christ died, when Christ died on the cross, he took judgment. He took our penalty for sin upon himself. And here, I believe, is how we see a uh, uh, inbreaking of the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness in the cross, which inaugurates the kingdom of God. And then we await for the fullness. So notice in Colossians 2, when Paul talks about the cross of Christ, he says in Colossians 2 that in the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Something happened. The cross is not just a uh, picture It's a real event and there was real physical death, obviously, but also a uh, destructive force against the kingdom of darkness. Something happened in the cross. Paul says in that, in the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. Literally, that is, he stripped away the rulers and authorities, surely referring to the spiritual rulers and authorities that lie behind the kingdom of darkness. And in the cross, Jesus stripped them away and triumphed over them. It was a victory. It looked to the king of darkness like a victory for them. Actually, it was part of their defeat. It was a wound to them. And Jesus triumphed over them in the cross. Now, although this is a reality for us now, we await the fullness of it. We have victory in Jesus because we've been transferred into the kingdom of the son of his love. We we have been transferred into his kingdom. But we await the fullness of it. We have an appetizer of the victory, but the banquet remains. We have a foretaste, but we long for the full meal. So while we only have an appetizer of the victory, it means that we have to face the reality of the destructive attempts of evil and of the devil now in our day. So the wounded but still destructive kingdom of darkness must coexist with the kingdom of God But the kingdom of God is continuing toward its inevitable victory. Now, I believe we see this as we look at the interpretation in verses 16 to 17. So look through verses 16 and 17. 
uh, sorry, verses 16 um, and all the way to 27, but we'll firstly look at 16 to 17 as we take this last half in Daniel chapter 7. We read that Daniel approaches um, presumably one of the multitude. It says he approaches someone. Perhaps that was one of the multitude that's standing there in his throne vision. And Daniel, in a way, actually enters in and he approaches this person and he asks them, hey, what's going on? This is some crazy stuff. What's actually happening in this vision? So the messenger gives the interpretation. And then I believe the description from verses 16 to 17 works kind of like concentric circles. You have uh, the first circle in uh, verses 17 to 18, which gives the summary. And then they sort of home in on specific aspects. So verses 19 to 22 uh, talks about a specific aspect. That is the fourth beast. And then finally, verses 23 to 27 gives a much more refined interpretation of the little horn and the clash of the kingdom uh, of darkness against the saints. So verses 17 to 18 gives this really easy summary. The four beasts equal four kings, but the saints will eventually receive the kingdom forever, forever and ever. And that's a wonderful summary and a wonderful hope for us. Verses 19 to 22 is this next circle that refines the vision a bit more, where he says the fourth beast, this is Daniel actually giving more detail about the vision. The fourth beast devoured everything. And then this little horn had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things. And it made war with the saints prevailing against them until the ancient of days came and judgment was given when the saints possessed the kingdom forever and ever. And then you have verses 23 to 27, which gives an even more refined interpretation, homing in on the fourth beast and the horn. So the fourth kingdom will devour much of the earth, the 10 horns equal 10 kings that arise out of this. And one king in particular will arise and cause much pain and destruction for the saints. He's gonna change the times and laws, but eventually the court will sit in judgment. His time will come and he will be destroyed and the saints will possess the kingdom forever and ever. Notice at the end of all of those circles, verses 17 to 18, verses 19 to 22, verses 23 to 27, what's the end? The saints will possess the kingdom forever and ever. That's the hope. There is coming a day. So the overarching theme we see is war, against God's people, which culminates in blasphemy and persecution of this little horn until finally the Ancient of Days comes and brings judgment and victory is given to the saints who possess the kingdom. Now, I want to just in five minutes look at this little horn. And I realize this can be sort of abstract concepts, uh, but God doesn't just leave us with abstract concepts concepts that aren't going to be helpful for us. This is tremendously helpful and wonderfully comforting for us. So this little horn and its destruction before the Ancient of Days has led to a, a ridiculous amount of ink being spilled throughout the history of the church as to who this is. Who is the little horn? There have been various interpretations of who this is. Some believe it's uh, Antiochus Epiphanes in the second century BC who did indeed, like would fulfill a lot of this. He caused a significant amount of destruction. Others would say it was Emperor Titus who finally destroyed the temple in AD 70. 
Um, some people just say it's basically every single pope throughout history. Uh, others would say there's a whole host of people. And the little horn uh, is representative of anyone who sets themselves up in opposition to God. Now, let's just look at what we clearly see. Remember, often what is helpful when approaching apocalyptic literature is what do we clearly see? Let's look at this little horn. In verse 25, we read, He shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. So what do we clearly see? We see blasphemy. We see persecution. And we see him claiming deity. So look, we see blasphemy. He's going to speak words against the Most High. We see persecution. He's going to wear out the saints. We see him claiming deity. He's going to try and change the times and the law. Something that God alone can do. And this is a fair summary of what the devil really seeks to do all the time. To blaspheme, to kill, and to attempt to put himself in the place of God. So I believe it's fair to say that this is either a description of the Antichrist. Anti can mean opposed to or in place of God. A description of the Antichrist or certainly a form of the Antichrist, which is just the pinnacle of the kingdom of darkness. And it's really interesting in your own time to look at the descriptions of this little horn and the fourth beast. And then look at some of the descriptions in, say, Revelation 13, where we read about the beast. And actually in Revelation 13, there's a combination of lion, uh, bear and leopard in the beast. So there's a lot of allusions back to Daniel chapter 7. Now, the difficulty from reading Daniel chapter 7 is that it does give a sequential order of these beasts. And it seems as though, if you read it on surface level, it seems as though the fourth beast would surely come much closer to the time of Daniel than our time now, if you're reading it sort of on surface level. So how do we make sense of the 2,500 years from Daniel's time to our time now? How do we make sense of this antichrist figure who embodies the pinnacle of opposition to God when we could look at many different points throughout history and see these sorts of things? See blasphemy, persecution, people claiming, people putting themselves in the place of God. This is why many have sort of interpreted this little horn as people throughout all history. There are many different people. Now, I believe that there is clearly an antichrist figure. Uh, Paul refers to that as the man of lawlessness. There will be one figure. But I believe it also takes shape in many different ways. And this is where understanding God's kingdom as a now and not yet reality actually helps us understand the clash of the kingdom of darkness with the uh, kingdom of God. So the Apostle John helps steer us in the right direction when we think about this. When we think about all of this opposition to God and this little horn figure. John helps us understand this. And a fun fact is that John is the only author who uses the word antichrist. You won't find it anywhere in any other book of the Bible. It's only the apostle John who uses the word antichrist. He says in chapter 2, verse 18 of his first letter, 
written, of course, toward the end of the first century at some stage. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Now, John is writing this 2,000 years ago. And he's saying the Antichrist is coming. And even now, there's many Antichrists among us. In a similar way to Paul in 2 Thessalonians, talks about the man of lawlessness that has to be revealed. But he says his work is everywhere. The mystery of lawlessness, the work of that is still present among us. So there is this figure this Antichrist figure, and yet uh, arguably as the pinnacle of the kingdom of darkness, he lies behind all of the opposition throughout all history toward God's people. And this is the point of some of the intentional vagueness of apocalyptic literature, the imagery that we see in Daniel. The reality is that blasphemy of God, persecution of his people, and all things in between continue throughout all history, until the Ancient of Days finally takes his seat in judgment. We miss the point of Daniel 7 if we are turned into detectives trying to major on minors. Rather than humble servants who are deeply comforted by what this reveals to us. And I believe the ultimate comfort we have is this imagery showing that, hey, persecution, blasphemy, opposition to God will continue. It's always in the kingdom of darkness, but it is simply working its way toward this final end where the Ancient of Days will take his seat, where the indestructible kingdom will destroy all of these human authorities and complete justice will be served. And we see that through these judgment scenes in verses 10, 22 and 26. They all talk about the Ancient of Days taking his seat on the throne these are pointing to the final judgment where I believe that this man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, the main figure will be revealed and will be utterly destroyed, thrown into the lake of fire, completely done away with. So I believe the big picture that we see in the midst of all of this destruction and disorder is that it is working its way toward the Son of Man, receiving his kingdom as he approaches the Ancient of Days, which inaugurates the kingdom of God so that Jesus can say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that continues until the final day where all of the kingdom of darkness is finally destroyed, finally done away with as Christ returns and the saints, we receive our full inheritance we receive the banquet of this little appetizer as beautiful and as wonderful as it is now to know that we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and all of the wonderful ocean of depth that we get to swim in now. We wait for the banquet. We wait for the fullness of that. In this in-between time, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness remain present. But the kingdom of God is inevitably and unstoppably growing regardless of the attempts of the kingdom of darkness. D.A. Carson says the gospel is boldly advancing under the contested reign and inevitable victory of King Jesus. The gospel is boldly advancing under the contested reign, notice that it's contested, and inevitable victory of King Jesus. His victory is inevitable. Let's finally finish by just taking four 
truths that we can clearly see from this passage. Let's take a step back and just look at the beautiful forest in its entirety and what comfort we can have in the midst of this seeming chaos and disorder that we surely experience in this world. The four truths. Number one, the kingdom of darkness is one of utter chaos and disorder. Uh, And we have to be very aware of that. As C.S. Lewis said, the best uh, secret of the devil is convincing the world that he doesn't exist. And Christians can buy into that as well, not realizing that the kingdom of darkness is one of utter chaos and disorder and the devil prowls around like a roaring lion waiting to destroy and devour God's people. Secondly, the son of man is the true king and perfect representative for humanity. He's the only true king and he is the perfect representative. He's the only true and perfect human, especially in contrast to all of these beasts. The son of man is the true king and perfect representative for humanity. And we have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the son of his love. Thirdly, no one will escape the judgment seat of the ancient of days. No one. And that is a beautiful comfort. It's an utter terror for people who have not bowed before the Son of Man that they will face judgment. It is utterly comforting to know when we experience all of the injustice in this world, all of the injustice of society, that there's nothing hidden that will not be brought to the surface. Nothing will escape the judgment seat of the Ancient of Days. All of the wickedness that we experience in this world, eventually it will be brought to the surface. And the Ancient of Days will pronounce judgment. And finally, God's people are assured their full inheritance in this everlasting kingdom. We are assured our full inheritance. And what a relief that the assurance is not based on our performance, but upon Christ. Our assurance comes from him. We are assured the full meal, the wedding supper of the Lamb, our full inheritance in this everlasting kingdom where we reign not just forever, but forever, forever and ever. What a wonderful comfort that is. Let's spend a moment now before we take the Lord's Supper, reorienting our hearts before we come before the cup and the bread, symbolic of the body of Christ, the cup, symbolic of the blood of the new covenant shed, how do we ultimately receive our inheritance? The the climax of that is in the cross of Christ, where we are transferred, where uh, God does uh, the greatest exchange of all history, our sin, our wickedness, our rebellion placed upon Jesus. The wrath of God poured out upon him. We receive his perfect, his perfect life. We receive the Father's uh, benevolence, his love poured out upon us because our sins are taken by Christ. We receive his righteousness. The Father looks upon us as though we have done everything right, not simply that we are forgiven, but as though we have done everything right because we are in Christ. And as Scripture says, we have the Holy Spirit as the seal, as the guarantee of our inheritance. So as we long for this inheritance, we long for the fullness of the kingdom of God. 
not the kingdom of darkness, not this kingdom of apathy and of destruction that makes us so unusually apathetic to some of these realities. We long for that day where it will be somehow, in some unimaginable way, increasing worship and excitement forever and ever and ever in the presence of our Savior.